Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and welcome to The Persistence. This is She Who Persisted, the nasty podcast. This is Elizabeth, and today, just a few days after Easter, we're doing a rebroadcast of our first episode where we look at the history of Easter as well as our personal relationships with the holiday. Please feel free to share your own experiences with us on our Facebook discussion group or on our Facebook page. We've got some great episodes coming up, including a look at a couple of badass feminists, both American and European, a discussion of the child-free movement, and an interview with Karen Carbo, author of In Praise of Difficult Women. If you have any topics you're interested in hearing about, please feel free to drop us a line at shewhopersistedpodcast at gmail.com, on our Facebook page, or on Twitter. Our handle is shepersistedpod. Finally, if you want to support feminist podcasting, and I know you do, please consider supporting us on Patreon, as well as rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now grab your discount Easter candy and settle in. She was warned. She was given an explanation. Nevertheless, she persisted. Well, hello. Hello to this very special Easter special of the She Who Persisted podcast, which is also our very first episode. My name is Beatrice and I'm here with Heather <laughs> and Bethany. Yay! Yay. <laughs> Yay! And this is an episode I said about Easter. So let me confuse you because why is this about Easter? Why did I click on that? I thought this was about feminism. What is even going on? Who are these people? I ask myself that most days. Exactly. What do they want from me? It's also something I ask myself a lot of times. What is going on in this world? I can. Scotty, beat me up. (laughs) So you probably have a lot of existential questions right now, and we won't be able to answer all of them. Probably won't be able to answer any of them, but don't worry. You are in the right place because Easter, as it turns out, is actually kind of a feministy kind of holiday. And... It's not just about eating all the chocolate you possibly can, which is something I kind of convinced myself is a very feminist thing to do. You probably agree with me, right? Absolutely. It's very feminist. All the chocolate. Okay. Um, (laughs) And not just on holidays. Not just always. That's true. Always chocolate. Try limit ourselves. It's the first rule rule of feminism. Number one rule is eat all the chocolate you possibly can. That's that's basically (laughs) the essence of feminism as we we see it. Okay. Um, (laughs) 
we will talk about um, the kind of feminist roots of the holiday today, the feminist and gendered implications of the holiday that are usually not talked about. And we'll talk about cute little uh, bunnies, right? Mm -hmm. We'll talk about cute little bunnies. Heather is going to yeah, say something about bunnies. We're going to talk about chocolate, of course, because that's what yeah. feminism is about. And sex goddesses. Yay. That's right. Also, yeah. That is, that is exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> but before that, Bethany wants to tell us a story. Bethany. Okay, so I kind of started telling this the other day and I was laughing so hard that I couldn't get through it. Mm. But I just wanted to say, so in my family, I grew up in a really conservative Christian household and we had a lot of rules about holidays and behavior and whatever. So, you know, as good Christian families do, every year my parents would make my brother and I Easter baskets and they'd put them at our place at the table and so when we came down in the morning after we showered and brushed our teeth and got all dressed up for Easter services, there would be this massive basket of chocolate and gifts and everything waiting for us, which was like, as a child, you're looking at, I mean, maybe there were like the equivalent of five can full-size candy bars, whatever. As a child, you're like, oh my God, yes, I must consume this. <laughs> and Yes, um, of course. So my, my parents had this rule though that you couldn't look in your Easter basket until after church. And I think the idea was mainly that they knew if we looked in the Easter basket before church, there was no recovering us from that. We were too far gone, sugar coma, laying passed out mm -hmm. on the floor. So um, one year, I was just really, really tired of this rule. I wanted some chocolate in my tummy immediately. I knew it was downstairs. So while my parents were getting ready, I snuck downstairs and I grabbed as much chocolate as I could fit in my two little hands, Wow! put it in the skirt of my dress, <laughs> mm -hmm. and thought to myself, now where am I going to eat this where my parents can't see me? And for some reason, I thought it would be a really great idea to just hide under the table, mm. because we had a tablecloth, and unless you, you know, knew I was there, you wouldn't be able to see me, or mm -hmm. so I thought. So I'm like sitting down there unwrapping and shoving as much chocolate in my face as I possibly can before I know I'm inevitably going to have to like come out and go to church. And um, I hear my dad walking down the stairs. So I'm like double timing it, you know, and he hears the crinkling of the wrappers of chocolate mm -hmm. and um, he goes, Bethany, are you eating chocolate <laughs> under the table? <laughs> And I swear to God, mouth full of chocolate smeared all over my face. I go, no, not me. <laughs> and my dad looks under the table and goes, I can see you doing it. And I'm like, no, dad. So I don't know why I thought I would get away from that. But mm. I just wanted to say that is me every Easter. My parents yes. have now made it a joke. Like, are you going to go eat this under the table? And I'm mm. like, no. I'm going to eat it at the goddamn table in front of everyone because that's what I want to do. Exactly. My chocolate. Yeah. Uh, you you yes. eat your chocolate, honey. Exactly. So if anyone out there is feeling bad about eating chocolate, at least you're not. We give you permission. The table, yes. Shoveling it into their face, looking their dad in the eye and saying, Absolutely. not me. <laughs> chocolate and proud. <laughs> so that's my Easter story. That is. My parents love to tell it to random people. That's applause for me. That was a that was a beautiful Easter story, Bethany. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you very much. This thank is how we can see that Bethany's been a feminist from the very beginning because she's always Body been eating positivity, chocolate. Body positivity, man. Exactly. Told not right. to eat so much chocolate, and I was like, I do what I want. 
Yeah. Yes. Thank you very much. You you get to do what you fucking want. Exactly. On, like even on the table exactly yeah not just under the table exactly okay we also want to talk uh, a bit about the root of easter and um yeah because well, sadly easter is not just about chocolate that is the very apparently yeah. there's other like there are other religious things. and non-religious things about it very it, confusing. yeah they're not they're not really important but we're just gonna say a few words about it you know <laughs> then you can you can eat chocolate again or you can actually eat chocolate while you're listening to this i think that would be perfect you should i think that's actually mandatory. actually right now you should go and get chocolate yeah you can pause we'll wait okay pause Okay, do you have chocolate? Okay, good. So, <laughs> generally speaking, um, Easter is a mixture of everything. So, it's really like a mishmash of all kinds of different traditions and symbolism, symbols coming from all kinds of different places. And today we want to look at uh, a few possible and likely origins because some of those are also kind of uh, a bit appropriated. Yes, and also it's not really, there are many things where it's not really clear where it comes from, so yeah. But we'll talk about the most important aspects and the most the most likely origins of Easter as it is celebrated by Christians today. Okay, yay! yay. <laughs> I said Christians and Bethany's like, yay, Christians! <laughs> My okay, complex so- history with Christianity had nothing to do with that celebration, by the way. Yeah. Nothing to Fine. do with your, with your love of chocolate, too. No. Mm-mm. Okay, so one important influence that keeps coming up when doing research on the subject is the ancient Germanic goddess of spring called Eostro. Did I pronounce that correctly? No idea. I don't know. No idea. Okay, I, no Good, idea. Because I, I don't think either. the point <laughs> is that it's so ancient that no one knows Nobody. This is true. Nobody will write us angry emails. Okay, I'm just going to call her Eostro from now on. It looks on. like I don't know Easter. So Easter. It kind that, of looks like Easter. I mean, it, it, would, it would make it would make sense. Right. If anyone listening to this knows the actual pronunciation because you were there at the time, then please, please give us, us a call. With a sound recording. Yes, it's, please do. it's she who persisted podcast at gmail.com. Please mail us uh, the recording. Thank you very much. But the spelling is E-O-S-T-R-E. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to go with Heather's suggestion and say Easter because it kind of makes sense. Um, a bit, a bit of sense. So, however, this um, origin it sounded. It looks like Easter. I'm not saying that it may have sounded like that. Eostra makes it makes all the letters seem possible. Okay, so this origin is slightly suspect because there is only one teeny tiny reference to her, and that's in the writing of Venerable Bede, an English monk who wrote about her centuries later. And sometimes the fact that rabbits have become a symbol of Easter is said to have its origin in tales about Easter, as she said to have had a rabbit companion. I would love to have a rabbit companion. That'd be amazing. That is very true. I had a rabbit companion once. I told you about that. Oh, you're very weird rabbit companion. He also liked chocolate. Okay. (laughs) Jacob Grimm, (laughs) in his writing about German mythology, um, Deutsche Mythologie, also made a connection between the practice of lighting bonfires at Easter and the Germanic goddess of spring, since he claims she was the goddess of a radiant dawn and upspringing light. However, as stated before, it's not clear how reliable Easter is as a source for Easter rituals and beliefs. Um, But apart from Easter, however, in many different polytheistic traditions, springtime was a time to celebrate all kinds of goddesses. Fertility goddesses, mostly. And the modern interpretation of Easter, with its symbols of a new life and rebirth, like eggs, chickens, lambs, rabbits, um, which are all signs of um, agricultural spring. So uh, those symbols and that kind of Easter, as we celebrate it today, 
has its roots in the worship of powerful female goddesses that were seen as vitally important in the workings of the universe. That's pretty amazing. That is amazing. All right, so let's talk about some of the goddesses who were celebrated in the spring before Christianity gained some ground. And by some goddesses, I guess I'm a little biased here because I'm a classicist and between Greece and Rome, I do prefer Rome. So I'm going to talk about some Roman goddesses. Um, and any time that I get to talk about ancient Rome is a pretty darn good day for me. <laughs> so, yay. yay! So we're going to focus on their deities and festivals. Um, obviously, anybody who studied Rome would probably be able to tell you, I mean, they should be able to if they studied it, that Rome took a lot of things from other cultures, uh, primarily Greece, but also Turkey, um, and really anybody they came in contact with, uh, that was their thing. So I'm not going to try to say, oh, this is all strictly Roman, but we're, uh, we're just going to talk about it as if it was straight from Rome, um, and you can figure out the elements later if you want to, or, you know, Google send me it. a message and ask me, and I'll tell you. Yeah, or, or just Google it. Just Google <laughs> it. Yeah, or Google it. You have the you know, Google. That, that works, awesome. too. Okay. <laughs> Google. Yes. You know, you can check Wikipedia, too. I don't think Completely. that it's a... I don't think that's a horrible resource. No. Anyway, the Romans were masters at borrowing from other cultures. We know that. But before we get into talking about specifics, one of the best things that was ever taught to me by a professor when studying ancient cultures, and really this goes for any culture that's not your own, is it's important to practice cultural relativism. Are you guys familiar with that at all? I have no clue what that means. Okay, so well, explain it to me like I'm a three-year-old. Yes, please. Okay, uh, done. Because I actually so you may not you may not know the term, but it's actually kind of common sense um, once it's explained. It just means that when you're looking at other cultures, you can't hold them to 21st century standards, or if you're in present day, you can't hold them necessarily to your standards. In order to understand their behavior, you have to look at them through their eyes okay that's exactly what i do with the victorian period like right oh my gosh you can't say that the victorians were awful misled people because you're judging them by this age where we have technology and access to more materials and stuff like that right absolutely so um when i start getting into some of the discussion here you may be like oh yuck how did they how did they even let that happen but um it was normal for them so let's just let's just start at this moment and pretend that we are part of the goddess-worshipping people of ancient Rome. Okay. And try to see the world through their eyes. Okay, close your eyes. Open them. Okay, okay we're in Rome. Okay, Whoa. wow. Magic. Magic. Is one of the goddesses called Beyonce? Because that would make it easy for me. To Beyonce, <laughs> no. No, no, she's much, much. Oh, shit. Okay. She is. Then I cannot right, imagine I'll, I'll it. give I'm... you some names. I'll give okay. you some okay. names. Okay. Thank right. you. Okay. okay, I'm going to try to imagine it nonetheless, but it's going to be hard for me. Okay. Okay, okay. There's no Beyonce here. Oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah, it's rough. It's bad. Yeah. So, we're in the month of April, mm -hmm. just like we are today. Okay. But for the Romans, one of the most important goddesses of this month was Venus. Like my razor. Right, there you go. Yes, she came out right about the time everyone should start shaving their legs to prepare for summer, right? Okay, yeah. perfect, yeah. perfect. <laughs> so on April 1st, there was a festival held to in her honor, as well as the in honor of the goddess Fortuna, or Fortune. 
The ceremony uh, supposedly began as a way to appease the gods, all gods, the whole pantheon here, um, for sexual transgressions between some Roman men and Vestal virgins. And we'll talk more about the importance of Vestal virgins in a few minutes. But um, I wanted to mention that the Vestal virgins, as you probably figured out by their name, were expected to remain chaste during their service to the goddess Vesta, as their roles were so vital that they just couldn't afford to be distracted by earthly or sexual pleasures. Fuck those men, those tempters. Well, I mean, not literally, but, you know. Yeah, not literally. See, that would, that get is you, the point. that would get you killed. Yes. Damn. <laughs> as a virgin, that. as a vessel virgin. not worth that, man. Yeah, no, it's not worth it. No, they mm. had an important job to do. But, uh, so the entire month of April was filled with dedications and festivities for many goddesses because the Romans wanted to make sure that every deity tied with the future harvest was appeased so that they would have a hearty crop. So aside from starting off the month honoring morally acceptable sexual conduct between the sexes, the rest of the month was focused on goddesses like Ceres and Tellus, and although I'm not really going to talk about her, Flora, goddess of the flowers and blossoming, and of course the great mother herself, Magna Mater or Sibylle, who I believe Beatrice will be discussing shortly. Yes. 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 So Tellus was an earth goddess. She isn't one of the big characters in myth, but she was still necessary to the functioning of the Roman world. Her festival, the Forticidia, was held on April 15th, which is uh, around the time of this recording, <laughs> and was dedicated to the concept of fertility. As any of the goddesses were, they had to be pleased with sacrifices made in her honor before the crops would grow successfully so that the Romans could feed themselves. Now this one is where I'm going to actually pull you into the cultural relativism here. Bear with me. You are Roman. This is normal. Okay. All right? Okay. It's All normal. Right. It's I'm normal. Ready. There's a lot of blood. Okay. Okay. Like my Part period. of this festival in included taking 31 pregnant cows mm -hmm. and having their unborn calves ripped from their womb. Completely normal. Yeah. Completely. What we do. They, yeah. They burned the calves' bodies so that they could mix their ashes with other elements, including some dried blood from a horse that they had slaughtered at another festival back in October. I wow, know that that's that, some powerful preservation I, right there. Right. You know, they had their ways. I mean, the so Romans, I, right? I, just keeping my blood powder. No big deal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So okay. it, I know it sounds, it might sound to the 21st century person a little bit disturbing, but, yeah. you know, we're Romans. We're Romans here. It's normal. Uh -huh. It's and normal. We have to have, we have to have perpetual divine favor. Yes. Now, yes. So that bloody mixture yes. was used at a festival later in the month, the Perilia, which was in honor of the gender ambiguous deity, Pallas, and the goddess Roma herself. Roma's a big deal. Um... Paulace, we say gender ambiguous because we're not sure the gender of that of the word. Paulace it's is not my like new personal hero. It's not like Bacchus, where he seemed really, or Dionysus, where he seemed really effeminate, um, which is sort of gender ambiguous, I guess, in some of his myths. But um, well, not really. But 
more of the effeminate side. Pallas, just gender ambiguous because we simply don't know based on the word whether. But, but are there any know. are there any depictions of that goddess or god, um, or is it just that we don't know what gender the name is? We don't know what gender the name is, and in the writings that we have, there's no indication based on other words. Okay. whether it was male or female. So we're just going to go with gender ambiguous because it makes sense with the rest of the month with all of the goddesses that are heavily in this month. Like March is a little more um, for the gods, the male gods. April's pretty heavy into the female goddesses. Mm -hmm. So for our sakes, we're just going to say gender ambiguous. Um, but anyway, so this bloody mixture thrown onto a bonfire mm -hmm. and shepherds were supposed to jump over the fire in order to secure the safety of their flock for the rest of the year. Mm -hmm. Right? Normal. It's I mean, completely normal. And it, yes. They may have brought their sheep with them. We don't we don't mm -hmm. know. Oh, I thought I mean, we can imagine it. We're here. Fall asleep so. like sheep, you know, jumping over the fire. What? Sheep and fire? Jumping over. They I'm might gonna count them at night. Yeah. Yeah, you should do that. Yes, it will make you sleep um, much, <laughs> much more better, right? Much Peacefully. better if you imagine like a bloody bonfire with sheep jumping over it. Sheep jumping, jumping over it. Yeah, I agree. Right, I agree. That, yeah, and since yeah. we're technically on our Easter episode, she persisted. Um, I should probably mention that the Perilia involved obviously sheep, as I mentioned. That would also mean lambs. Uh, mm -hmm. There were prayers of forgiveness for any transgressions against the deity of the festival. And, you know, they had some wine that they drank. So, uh, yeah. I can feel some hints of what's to come. Really? Yeah. Just bits and pieces here and there. It yeah. all comes together. This okay. is the mis mishmash part of it all, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, another goddess that the Romans really, really loved and adored... Um, who I think personally from a 21st century view even though you're not supposed to do that was a pretty good example of strength of a woman um, and uh, very much an homage to how strong a mother's love is uh, this woman or this goddess had a festival in the middle of April for several days she had games and Theatrical performances in her honor. Citizens wore white robes during the festival for her. She's the goddess of agriculture. Does anybody know her name? Beatrice no Bethany, anyone? Ceres! Okay, I, yeah. <laughs> Ceres or Demeter. Maybe. See, that's that's what I wanted to say. say. I wanted to say. Demeter. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. I wanted to say Demeter, but I, I didn't dare to because, yeah. Back to the Romans taking things from the Greeks, I guess. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so Ceres, you know, why was she such a big deal? Well, the short version, when she's unhappy and grieving, your crops won't grow. Her myth. Oh. Yeah. Her That's myth helps good. explain the changing of the seasons. Now, you might know the backstory, but we'll go over it anyway. Her daughter, Proserpina, or Persephone, or Kore, depending on what time period you're talking about here, between Greece and Rome, she was a young maiden picking flowers in a meadow. Now, I'm going to pause there for a second because any student in any mythology class should know what's coming next when you have a maiden in a meadow picking flowers. The wolf is coming. Here comes the beast. The wolf. The wolf is coming. Yes. She's about to be taken. <laughs> She's oh no longer going to be a maiden. So as she was out on her innocent venture, she was ripped down to the underworld, 
by Dispater or Hades or Pluto, however you want to refer to him, so that she would become his bride. Ceres obviously was devastated. She could not find her daughter, searched the entire world, world over, is very crushed, and decides she doesn't care about protecting the crops anymore, and humans could just die if that's what it, if that's what it means. Her daughter's gone. Sounds she like has a lovely woman. What? She sounds like a lovely woman. Yeah. Well, I mean, she's a crushed mother, so uh, she just doesn't doesn't care about others right now. And it took a, a handful of other gods to get involved before things got rectified. Well, slightly rectified, but um, eventually. Word gets down to Hades that he needs to let Persephone, or Proserpina, come back to her mother because humans need food and the gods can't be properly honored without humans, so obviously humans need to live. Um, so he agrees, yeah, sure, I'll send her back, but tricks her into eating some pomegranate seeds, which only means that she, she can't only stay for a certain amount of time. In other words, the season when crops are growing. When Ceres is reunited with her daughter, crops will grow. When her daughter has to go back and be with her husband, the crops die off. So now we have winter and spring here. So I think that's a pretty good story. It shows how she's important anyway. I mean, she's already grieving and then humans don't properly sacrifice to her and pray to her, then why would she, why would she let your crops grow properly, right? Mm, yeah, that makes yeah. fun. Yeah. So the, um, Back to the Vestal Virgins, so we've got, the I don't want to say tangible, because, you know, you're really not allowed to touch them, at least men were. Um, but if we get off of the goddess idea for now and go to actual women that you could physically see in Rome, the Vestal Virgins were so important, and they were highly active in the festivals during the month of April. They gave the physical, like a physical manifestation of the divine, so... They were Vesta's attendants, as I mentioned earlier. They had critical roles in these ceremonies. And um, there was an excellent article that I found recently by Deborah McLeod. It's called Vestal Virgins, Feminism and the Evil Field, which I'm not going to get into the evil field part of it. But it kind of covers the badassery of these women, despite how modernity views their order. So the Vestal Virgins were an order of women. Their role was to keep the fire of Vesta ever burning within her temple. Vesta, the goddess of the hearth, she was one of the most important protectors of Rome. And if her fire burned out, if it was extinguished, the state was probably about to fall. Which means no more chocolate. That's oh, right. No, no. no. So you, you want to keep that chocolate coming in. So right, I right. Would, uh, you know you what? Absolutely. I would stay a virgin for life if it meant... I could have exactly. There I you just, go. I just wanted to to make sure that the listeners understand like the importance of of that undertaking right. of keeping the fire burning. Absolutely. Related chocolate. Yes. Yes. Exactly. So, okay. Sorry. Go so, on. <laughs> no, you're fine. So the Vestal Virgins, you know, obviously an important task, and um, their behavior had to emulate what was pleasing to Vesta in order to maintain her favor, and they were highly esteemed. They had the option when they were done finishing their vow to Vesta, which was roughly a 30-year vow, that they could either continue to serve her or they could leave and get married. But they had accumulated wealth while they were uh, priestesses, not that they really did anything with it, but they were held in such high esteem that when they were done with the order, they had a level of independence that most other women couldn't attain. And that's kind of reflected 
when the empire starts that um, the emperors would allow female fem family members to have what was called vestal privileges, mm. which essentially meant that they were liberated from the influence of the familial patriarch because women were always under the influence mm. of the man. But anyway, that's just my little bit about Rome and Easter. Well, you know, spring equinox time, April, goddesses. Chocolate. Yeah, right. Yep, chocolate. <laughs> that's okay. really interesting because I think you never really realize how many important women there are to different yes. cultures. And yes, I think completely. Beatrice, you were going to talk some about that as well. Yes, right? I'm just going to say now you've heard you've heard from Heather, who is a classicist and an expert on the subject, and um, now you're going to hear from me, Beatrice, who has no idea what she's talking about and just copies and pastes <laughs> things from the internet. So here we go. Um, <laughs> Um, apart from uh, like the uh, you know equinox and spring celebrations that you already heard about and the goddesses you already heard about, some scholars also think that modern Easter is heavily influenced by the Sibylli cult of ancient Rome and Greece. Now, Sibylli is probably not the way that the Romans actually pronounced Sibylli. They probably pronounced it with a K. I'm still going to go with Sibylli, which is going to drive Heather crazy. But this <laughs> is just okay. how let people, it go. yeah, this is just how people kind of know that. In recognize the name because we also don't say Caesar, we say Caesar, right? Although that's probably not how the Romans pronounced his name. Right. So Sibylle was not any old goddess, but she was the Phrygian mother of the gods. So oh. she was, yes, right. <laughs> Bethany's very excited. I am. Um... Yeah. She's also a fertility goddess. She's an agricultural goddess, like most spring goddesses. And she's responsible for curing diseases and ailments. Mm -hmm. So originally, Sibylle probably evolved from an Anatolian mother goddess, the mother of the mountains. She was ancient Phrygia's only known goddess and presumably the highest deity of the Phrygian state. That's a lot of power for one woman. That is a lot of power for one woman. Tell well, me about for it. one person. Tell, tell, me, tell me about it. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, and she was also referred to as Marta, mother, and she was uh, probably looked at kind of as a mediator between the boundaries of the known and unknown, the civilized and the wild, the worlds of the living and the dead. Over time, yes, over time, uh, the Phrygian cult and Phrygian iconography of this mother goddess was transformed and subsumed by influences and interpretations by first ancient Greek and then later ancient Roman beliefs. So the Phrygian Sibylli cult was spread to the mainland of Greece until around the 6th century BC, where her worship was also assimilated into the worship of other goddesses, such as Demeter, Rhea, or the earth goddess Gaia. But um, most often she was actually associated or assimilated into beliefs of uh, the earth mother Rhea, the Greek, the Greek mother of the gods, who was like Sibylli, worshipped with raucous ecstatic rites, and uh, in literature, the rites are described as accompanied by loud and per percussive music with the tampanon, I hope I pronounced it correctly, tympanon, castanets, clashing cymbals and flutes, and uh, also accompanied by frenzied Phrygian dance, which most likely was a form of circle dancing of um, women to the, quote, a wise and healing music of the gods, unquote. 
In Greece, uh, Sibylle was also associated with mountains, with towns and city walls, with fertility, fertile nature, wild animals, and especially lions. Um, she was also depicted with, with lions quite frequently. And in Rome, um, as uh, uh, Heather already talked about, Sibylle was also known as the Great Mother or Magna Mater. She was uh, celebrated and worshipped throughout the Roman Empire and she was usually depicted in the chariot with two lions pulling that chariot or sitting with one lion on each side, which is pretty badass. That is incredibly badass. That is, it I absolutely mean, is. This is so cool. I wish I would have like two lions right here, one sitting at each of my sides. No one would <laughs> ever fuck with you. No one would. Not that anybody does right now, but if I had those lions, you know. Which is probably why I like cats so much, because I can imagine them as being, a, you know... Your warriors. They are my lions. <laughs> um, yeah, and she's also worshipped in orgiastic rites in Rome, and uh, there she's symbolically showered with gifts. And there Naturally. Is, yes, like I am, too. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, Sibylle is celebrated in not one, but two spring festivals also uh, badass also badass two lions <laughs> gifts festivals okay i want her life tell me about it <laughs> firstly in the so-called megalesia in april so um this is usually commenced on april the 4th um, which is the anniversary of her arrival in rome and by some the civilly cult in rome was kind of considered too exotic and phrygian or, or greek and wild and not befitting proper dignified Roman tastes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you don't want any of those bacchanal excursions and you just cut loose and, and like, party all the time. You don't fun. want percussive instruments and you don't want lions. No. No. Bored. Right. Just no. No. Okay. And then yeah. there's a second celebration, worshipping civilly, and that's a so-called Holy Week in March from the 15th to the 28th of March. That's interesting. So interesting. Yeah. Heather's going to yeah. jump in now and say a few more yeah. things. <laughs> Well, yeah, I have to. <laughs> I have to talk more about my Roman goddess. Yes, please do, because <laughs> you're the only one who knows what she's talking about here. So go okay. ahead. Oh, uh, well, there are um, some other interesting things to note about Magna Mater, Sibylle, Kibbele, in Roman times. Um, so her cult, as you mentioned, was brought to Italian shores, but... The reason why was because the Romans were in a period of war. Actually, the Second Punic War, for those of you who know what that is. Um, and they were always, they, meaning the Romans, were always far more willing to bring in outside deities to help get the universe on their side during times of war or other crises. So when, when they were in such dire need, the Romans would consult the Sibylline books which were prophecies that had been passed down by female oracles. And during this time, they kind of had this thorn in their side named Hannibal. You may have mm -hmm. heard of him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was, he was a tough guy. I just wanted to say there's also a film about him. He eats humans. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, not that one. Okay. Not that Okay, I'm sorry. I, 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 mi I mixed That's, it up. <laughs> I mean, this one may have. the A-team. Which I think is probably on no one else's mind except my own. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't, I don't think about Hannibal Lecter or anything else. I think of the Carthaginian general Hannibal when someone okay. says Hannibal. It's, it's the classicist in me. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know, Heather. I don't know what's wrong with you. Why don't you think about, I know, why don't you think all about those cannibals? Of studying. They just, 
they just drilled it into my head. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but apparently, so the Sibylline books suggested, in order to get Hannibal out of Rome, that uh, Magna Mater should be brought to the shore. It should be brought to Italy. And they went ahead and consulted the Pythian Oracle, um, another lady, who suggested that the Great Mother, yeah, she had to come to Italy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Hannibal uh, would get out and then, you know, suffer defeat in his homeland of Carthage. So her symbol, which was a black stone, probably a meteorite of some sort, was subsequently sent over from Pergamum in 204 BCE. And a couple years later, just as predicted, the war came to an end. Wow. The great mother had done her job <laughs> and established <laughs> established her place in Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope they had fireworks for her. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Or fires, Uh, you know, same thing. Right, yeah. Same thing, completely. Absolutely the exact same thing. They're both as dangerous. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, But once she was here, there were some massive restrictions on her cult. Why the restrictions? Well, I know you were listening to Beatrice when she was talking. Yes. But she, yes. Yes, Some scholars said that it was due to the ecstatic worship that that Beatrice mentioned, and I know you all heard. But um, that's not all. (laughs) The theory is that when her stone got here, she arrived in Ostia, the port of Rome. When, When she arrived, she, the stone, arrived, that... The Romans were a little bit thrown off when they saw who else was on the boat with her. What was Meaning, this naughty woman doing? Yeah, yeah, well, she had a consort that came along with her named Ooh, Attis. girl. Who, in myth, had castrated himself while in a frenzy, thanks to her. Oh. And she was accompanied by self-castrated priests. Wow. Um, she was the original yeah. castrating feminist. There you go. Yes. And uh, her festival, it was still important to the Roman world because obviously they needed to get Hannibal out and she delivered. Because nobody wants a cannibal. In right, the right, That's right. <laughs> uh, but the Roman citizens, they weren't allowed to participate in the procession. They could only watch all the bright colors and the exotic acts. Not too crazy because they wouldn't have done that. Um, but, you know, fairly exotic for their taste, like you said. Any role that the Roman citizens formerly played in her cults was highly monitored. So it kind of seems like it was a really interesting, fun, um, and had some native aspects that were just interesting to watch in general. Mm-hmm. But those parts were isolated to her temple, and her procession was kind of a you-can-look-but-don't-touch sort of idea. They must have been very frustrated. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. Was actually was one of the fears that were connected with it actually that males could start castrating themselves too when they when they kind of participate in that ecstatic kind of sure celebration yeah and that all goes back to um, you don't want the men self castrating obviously you don't want them acting feminine in any way uh, because they kind of had this idea that that would undermine the army mm. in general. Mm. You can't have women fighting. No. So you can't have feminine men fighting. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Repression was born. Yes. Yes. Right right there. I mean, the Romans may have not started it. I mean, you don't want to get too hard. I'm just kidding. You can say what you want. (laughs) Say what you want. Just say, go ahead and say what you want. 
Um, <laughs> okay, so another possible influence when it comes to modern Easter is the Sumerian legend or epic myth, the descent of Inanna. And one theory that is put forward over and over again is that the Easter story of crucifixion and resurrection is essentially a symbolic story of rebirth and renewal, and is supposed to retell the cycle of the seasons, um, not 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 just death and return of one single human god like Jesus, but like the death and return of the sun. So Inanna is uh, a goddess in Sumerian mythology, and she's also known as Ishtar in the Akkadian pantheon. She's regarded as one of the most important deities of the Mesopotamian pantheon, and she's known primarily as a <laughs> goddess of sexual love. Though so she's also, uh, she also has the reputation of being a goddess of war, so she's a very complex goddess that it has. Sounds like a good balance. Like war and sex. Yeah, perfect. Right? This I can is, get on board with that. Yeah, this is kind of the story of all of our lives, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like chocolate. It's a every day and a sexual passion. This is like <laughs> this are the three elements of my my day: it's war, sex, and chocolate. It's a, the the thing that I wanted to say is Inanna is a very complex go uh, goddess, and she has very attributes that seem to contradict contradict each other. Um, so, and at times she's also portrayed as a young girl on the patriarchal authority, and at times she's depicted as an ambitious figure who seeks to expand her own sphere of influence. And that latter trait of her is also visible in this tale that I'm going to tell you about of Inanna. And this is actually a poem that has that was composed at some point of time between 3500 BC and 1900 BC, though there are also people who say that it's a lot older than that, so we don't really know. And there are two main versions of the tale. So there's the descent of Inanna and the later descent of Ishtar, because Ishtar is also like um, another name for her, basically. The poem contains 415 lines, and by comparison, the later Ishtar's descent is told in 145 lines. So the first version was 415 and the second version was 145 lines. Sounds like the men got their hands on it. Exactly. That is right. <laughs> so it's been suggested that the difference was due to the influence of patriarchy, which diminished the power and importance of this goddess during the second millennium BC. Da, da, da. You can't have strong women. No. They are a threat to society. Exactly. Exactly. You're exactly right, Bethany. They didn't want us to have the chocolate. <laughs> right. Back to the chocolate. The descent of Inanna begins with the following lines. From the great heaven, the goddess set her mind on the great below. From the great heaven, Inanna set her mind on the great below. My mistress abandoned heaven, abandoned earth, and descended to the underworld. Inanna abandoned heaven, abandoned earth, and descended to the underworld. And one explanation for Inanna's interest in the underworld is that she hopes to extend her power into that realm. Okay. Um, and the... Actually, there's another badass woman in that whole story, and that's and I I don't know how to pronounce them. Okay, there are there are gonna be a lot of names in that tale that I'm not gonna pronounce correctly. Okay, um, Iresh Kigal is Inanna's sister, and she's the queen of the underworld. That even sounds like a badass name. Yes. Ereshkigal, I have no idea. Okay, and in the Easter tale, the later version, she wants to go into the underworld not because she wants to extend her power, but because her husband died and she's grief stricken and follows him. Oh, how so bad. that's the later. That is the later version. But in the earlier version, he's, she's just the badass. Heartbreaking. Yeah. But in the earlier version, she, she just wants to be more powerful and extend her power into the realm of 
her sister, the Underworld Queen. So when the Underworld Queen, who received this news, uh, she, she received this news and she's not very pleased, of course, and she orders that the seven gates of the Underworld are bolted against her sister. Rude. Oh. Rude. <laughs> <laughs> so Inanna is only allowed to pass one gate at a time and before each gate, she's required to remove a piece of her royal garment. And by the time she reaches the throne of her wow. sister, she's naked and powerless. Then wow. she's overpowered by her sister. She's killed and hung on display. Does that ring a bell? Yeah. Sounds a bit like a Christian tale. It does we had about sound it. a little familiar. It does, yeah, indeed. So prior to entering the underworld, however, Inanna had instructed because she's very clever, right? She instructed a servant um, and, and tells him that he has to come to her aid when she fails to return. And then the servant goes to the gods, to other gods, um, specifically in that case to um, Inanna's father, for help. And then there are a few bits and pieces of the story that I'm not going to go into, but in the end, Inanna is resurrected with the plant and the water of life. What? 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 Okay. Never heard that phrase. Before. Never heard that. And also, the resurrection part is also completely a new thing to us. Never heard of that before. Absolutely. This is new in this I know, time period. Yes. It, it blows your mind. <laughs> it does. Yeah. Okay. I think that's so good that that future generations could continue to recycle this story yeah you are one wise woman mm. <laughs> Ooh. okay so and then uh, inana encounters her husband who is not in mourning again rude what rude oh, exactly what? and he she's like what the fuck man so she's really <laughs> infuriated and she orders him to be seized good good go you go girl <laughs> you go okay then he's captured <laughs> in his attempt to escape and he's brought into the underworld. And then his sister, I'm also not going to say her name because I can't pronounce it, um, volunteers to be her brother's substitute in the underworld, like in Beauty and the Beast. And then in the end, um, it's decided that uh, Nana's hu um, husband and his sister would each spend half the year in the underworld. Okay. And like the Greek myth of Persephone and Demeter, this event is used to explain Yay. the changing of the seasons and the cycles of winter death and spring life. Wow. Yes. Yeah. I mean, so maybe the Romans weren't the original creators of the myth then? Is that what you're saying? Did they, did they maybe borrow it? Maybe. Maybe also the, maybe the Greeks. Maybe the Greeks borrowed it first. Maybe, maybe oh. everybody just keeps borrowing things. Because there yeah. are... I mean, of course, there are striking similarities between the cheeses resurrection story and Easter's <laughs> story, um, and Easter's story of a temporary adventure into the underworld. But there are similar stories of dying and resurrection, resurrected gods and goddesses in different mythologies. They're all represent like Dionysus, exactly, exactly. exactly. So, like. They all represent the cycle of the seasons, the resurrection of the Egyptian horrors, the story of Mithras, who was also worshipped at springtime, by the way, and the tale of Dionysus, as Heather just said, because he was resurrected by his grandmother, right? Badass woman. Mm -hmm. Okay. He must have had a really bad hangover. Yeah. But the point is, the point is, stories of resurrection, like death and resurrection of gods and goddesses is something that is not new to Christianity. So it's been borrowed and borrowed and borrowed again and... 
there are bits and pieces in this mythology and then there are bits and pieces in this mythology and it's really hard to see where it exactly comes from but it's been there for a long time so the themes of fertility conception renewal descent into darkness and the final triumph of light over said darkness are all element of numerous tales i'd like to point out also it's really interesting how you know when you're looking at dionysus and then you know looking at jesus christ and these are both men who have been resurrected mm. and when you look at you know whatever you're going to consider to be the original tale it's a woman who's resurrected i think yeah. that's really interesting yeah and that's also uh you know kind of telling um when you think about like the androcentric ways of monotheistic religions right so it, it's no i think it's no coincidence that like female centric traditions were kind of subsumed under androcentric traditions yeah because you enter time. this time period where you go from maybe a more egalitarian point of view to a very patriarchal dominated view and yeah. having the west kind of diminish the value of equality right talking about female centricity in religion i want to return to good old easter the not the, the, the festival, but the goddess, the Germanic goddess. Because even though her existence is still speculated upon, the Wiccans and other new pagans today celebrate her every year in the festival called Ostara, a festival that is celebrated, um, a, a festival that celebrates the seasons change from dark winter to bright spring. And similar to Easter symbolism, the pa new pagan festival also includes eggs, rabbits, flowers, and seeds. What word? And many neo pagans are also part of the so called goddess movement, which is a feminist spiritual movement that emerged in the 1970s, of course, because everything did. And it was a reaction to the androcentricity of monotheistic religions. Some of those, such as Dianic Wicca, um, worship only female deities. So they worship female deities exclusively, which is kind of cool. And the study of goddesses and their meaning is called theology. Not theology, theology. The study oh, with an with A. An a. Um, the study and reflection upon the feminine divine from a feminist perspective. And with that, I give over to Bethany. <laughs> yeah, because I think, you know, if we're going to talk about theology, yeah. we should talk about theology. Mm. So I came from a Christian background, and usually people who have met me for the first time are like, no way that's not even possible you have said the word fuck five times in your last five words so because it's literally you know, it's, every like it's the only word you ever say it's true it's true and I just um you know I think there's a bit of shock when people find out that I grew up in this conservative Christian family my maternal grandfather was a Baptist preacher um I was baptized at the age of five because I just knew at that moment I wanted to spend my life serving God. And mm -hmm. um, then a really funny thing happened, which is I grew up. And it happens I, to some of us. Uh, yeah, I mean, not everyone. Not, not everyone. everyone. I mean, it happened to me. But it is, it's kind of a miracle in itself. You know, you grow yeah. up and you realize that you actually want to start learning and questioning and deciding for yourself what you want to believe. And, you know, I started to question all of the things that I had just kind of accepted as truth in the Christian religion. Um, a lot of people saw that as a tragedy. Most of the people I grew up with were like, mm. oh, she's giving into sin. 
And you know, actually, I think that Easter is a really great time to talk about all of this. Christian holidays always take place around pagan holidays, mm-hmm. which I think is really interesting. And you kind of ask yourself, like, why, why did Christianity kind of appropriate these holidays? You know, why couldn't they just come up with their own? Yeah. I discovered this when I was in high school. Um, as someone who was kind of struggling with their faith at the time and still thought they knew all of the answers to life, it was quite a blow. I mean, I looked around and kind of saw how these holidays had just become largely commercial. I mean, I knew people who never went to church a day in their lives, but they were out on Black Friday buying as much stuff as they could for Christmas. And it seemed like you had to have the biggest, most extravagant Christmas tree. Your Easter basket should have so much chocolate in it that you ended up in a sugar coma for the next three months. Um, not that I'm saying that's a bad thing. No, but, chocolate you know, is great. But this idea that if you didn't get numerous expensive gifts at each of these holidays, your life was a miserable, miserable failure. Your parents were poor. You probably slept under a bridge somewhere in a box. Like there was so much negativity that surrounded these things. And actually, interesting side fact, depression rates spike around holidays yes they do oh my gosh people are giving gifts and there's friends and family and all this excitement but actually like people go into debt to make these things super extra over the top and perfect also and actually it just kind of hurts everyone suicide rates are also usually the highest in christmas by the way yeah yeah exactly i mean and you think about it like the days are shorter you have more darkness that automatically is impacting people's moods. And then you force them to travel 15 hours in a car out to Illinois to see all their extended family. And you just kind of want to cry and Harry Potter is your only saving grace. Exactly. And you should- from personal experience. No, no, no. And and what they should actually do is to sit on the table and eat their chocolate. Exactly, exactly. Instead of stressing out about- Why do you think I developed that coping mechanism? Right, okay. So I am here to ruin all of your holidays for you all of them go ahead ahead. we're gonna go on this journey yes Um, i just want to talk about some of these things that i discovered after i left the christian faith and its traditions if you haven't had a religious upbringing or you weren't even interested enough to look at these things yourself i'm here to ruin your holidays like my mother ruined thanksgiving for me one year by telling me that the pilgrims who came over on the ships to the new land were actually in all mostly indentured servants. There were like seven pilgrims there for religious freedom. Mm -hmm. You may have heard this said before. I'm going to reiterate what you ladies have already said, which is that, yes, Christian traditions are largely appropriated from pagan celebrations. And everyone listening right now is probably fuming in your head like, but pagans and Christians have nothing in common. They're complete opposites. And yeah, sure, you'd be largely correct in saying that. However, to understand these things, we really have to look at the growth of the early church. So as Heather was saying, the church struggled quite a bit as it developed. Um, The church leaders realized that so many of their congregation were illiterate. Um, Why would you read when you're out working in the harvest from five in the morning until the sun sets? Um, People didn't really read books unless they were from the upper class. And most people in the parishes were working folk, people who tended their fields all day and didn't have time or money to attend school. Um, Education was a luxury that most either couldn't afford 
or didn't see a purpose to, uh, much like today, I suppose. Much like today, some of them even become presidents, you know, even though yeah, they just, yeah. I mean, it happens. You know, unless you're going into business, right. there's no money to be made in reciting verses in it, Latin. There's no use. So, you know, how does that tie into the church? Well, actually, by the 1960s, it's interesting to note, Catholic churches began giving mass in their church's common tongue, so, for example, here in the States, English, instead of Latin, because they realized that people didn't understand what they were saying. And Latin wasn't being taught in schools anymore. If it was, it was only to strengthen, you know, those languages which had Latin roots. So the directives in mass might have well, you know, just have been in a foreign language. Faith was becoming alienating. It was inaccessible to the common person. And so the church realized they needed a change. And this had started way back when, when the growth of the church was originally starting to slow and people were joining in on harvest festivals, for example, which were largely done to like, I think, praise the sun god for letting the harvest be bountiful. Um, there was this connection to thanking nature for their success. And that was more well understood to those in agriculture than thanking this invisible deity that the church wanted them to pray to and worship while they had to then abide by a shit ton of rules for which there didn't seem to be any purpose and no one really wanted to follow. In fact, actually, even before Christian holidays revolved around pagan traditions, they were originally Jewish holy days. If you think about it, the early church was an offset of Judaism with the difference that Christians believed Jesus to be the son of God. And from there, um, although there are many lost records about the growth of the church and things like that, Probably the turning point from Jewish tradition to pagan celebrations came in the 700s when the church found that it had so many saints to venerate that it couldn't give each one its own day to celebrate. The May I just add time, one thing? Yeah. Some people, some people even argue that Jesus was a Jew. Oh, gosh. Yes. The horror of that. Yeah. Did you hear the rumor? Yeah. Oof. I can't yeah. believe it. Mm -mm. Jesus was Christian. Okay. He from like day one. Him. From like he came, he, yeah, he was born and he was Christian. He exactly. never, he never was Jewish. Exactly. Much yes. like these saints. Yeah. So, he was also white, as we all know. Oh, of course. Of course. He was white. He dressed in all white, even yes. though he lived in the dust. He didn't like cutting his hair and he didn't like shaving. He rode on a stallion. He conquered all of the lands. Yes. Okay. Of course. Yes. So. Yes. Much like this beautiful white Jesus who should never be touched because he's so pure. Yeah. Um, pope Gregory III, who was Pope in the 700s, decided that they just couldn't keep giving each saint their own day because there were way too many of these, you know, old white men who needed to be praised. So they declared November 1st a day to celebrate all of the saints in one go. Easy. It is not a coincidence that he picked this day. Um, as we all know, because we all avidly love eating chocolate. Halloween yes. is the day before. And at that time, it was an end of harvest festival, a festival of the dead. And those in agriculture would say goodbye to the last of their crops and welcome in winter. Instead of joining in by parading ghosts through the town or, you know, honoring the dead, the church would parade saints and demons. And they further claim that the bonfires, which, if you remember, were originally lit to thank the sun, were actually able to ward off the devil. These claims allowed the church to kind of subvert the original meaning of the celebrations 
while allowing parishioners to partake in these larger pre-established festivals. They had so many rules that people were leaving the church, had no interest in being governed. And these festivals kind of gave the church a way to say, no, 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 you can still have fun. But look, it has a Christian meaning now. So at this point, you're probably wondering what in the world all of this has to do with Easter. It's not November. Why am I talking about, you know, October 31st, Halloween and All Saints Day and Christmas? Why are you, Bethany? Why are you talking about all of this? Tell us, please. Besides please, the fact please tell that us. I need multiple excuses per year to binge eat chocolate. Yes. This actually ties back into what I was saying about ruining all of your holiday celebrations. Because that's what you came here for. Because that is what I came here for. A, eating chocolate, B, ruining things. Exactly. Yeah, yes. Okay, cool. Question for you guys and for everyone who is out there listening. Yes. Do you know the date that Jesus was actually born? Any guesses? I don't. I'm, I'm not even sure if he ever existed, but yeah. Okay, all right, fair enough. Um, Thank you. <laughs> most people would have been like, December 25th, Christ was born. Everyone celebrated. You're wrong. Do you know what? Do you know what? I, 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 I'm not from America, as you can probably tell. And um, in Austria, where I come from, we celebrate Christmas on the 24th. So in Austria, most people would probably have said 24th of December. They would also be wrong. They would be wrong. You're all wrong, listeners. Then a follow-up to that is, do you know the date that Jesus was actually crucified? No. So, you know, most people tend to celebrate this around Easter. We celebrate the crucifixion and his resurrection. So as yes. for his birth, I'll just kill Christmas for you by telling you that Jesus was definitely not born in December. Damn it. If you actually believe he's a real person. Yeah. In fact, he was probably born somewhere between June and September. And this uncertainty holds true for his crucifixion and resurrection as well. Scholars can't even agree on what year he was crucified. Yeah. How can you actually, you know, determine the actual month? Why in the heck do we celebrate Easter in April? Well, this is the part where I go even further and say, if you've ever taken a religious history class, you've probably heard of the Council of Nicaea. Um, a bunch of men, unsurprisingly, got together and came up with the Nicaean Creed, which was kind of the first official list of everything that Christians declared to be true. And at that time, which was the year 325, they decided that Jesus's crucifixion would be remembered on the March equinox. The spring equinox? Oh, gasp! The spring oh. equinox, wow. which most definitely is not anyone else's celebration. Not at all. I've never heard this nope. before. It's completely new. And then, funny enough, starting in the 1500, around the 1500s, the world began to switch over to the Gregorian calendar instead of the whatever this other one was that they were on. They switched <laughs> over from this other calendar to the Gregorian calendar, which is kind of what we use now, um, which meant that the date for Easter now can pretty much occur anywhere between March 22nd and April 25th. So because the date was originally on the March equinox, a lot of the pagan ideologies for praising and utilizing symbols of fertility, like our now infamous Easter eggs, were drawn into the Christian tradition and they became this social norm. So you have to ask then if Christian traditions and holidays seem to be ingrained with these symbols of fertility and goddesses, why am I, as a woman, 
so bitter about Christianity and its appropriation of these symbols. Why are you, Bethany? This is a really big question. Yeah. I feel like that's a very deep question. in case you can't hear like that underlying anger, it's just because I have suppressed it for so many years because that's what we're taught. So I am angry, ladies, because it sets the tone for the undermining and oppression of women throughout the centuries. Here we see a way of life that has continually been male-dominated, that has perpetually devalued women, even though the book that so many purport to follow often advocates for women. Like there's, um, there's if you do marriage counseling in the Christian tradition, you oftentimes have to read the epilogue of Proverbs 31 in the Bible, which talks about the perfect woman, the perfect wife. Interestingly enough, it talks about a woman buying land growing her own vineyard, having profits, being a success, actively being praised by her husband, who then hands over the household finances and affairs to her because as a woman, she is competent in these matters. And it's funny because you look at feminism and feminism in Christianity can kind of be seen almost as a bit of a taboo. I mean, men who are in power will do whatever they can to continue to stay in power. And I, for one, am sick of hearing church leadership say things like, well, Paul said that woman has no place um, being in a position of power in the church, which is something that men like to quote from the New Testament. Um, My response to that is you should be taking off that polyester cotton blend shirt you're wearing because the Bible forbids that too in Leviticus. So, you know, Christianity has long been a religion of followers who pick and choose which commandments they want to follow the ones which give them as an individual the most power, especially if it's at the expense of someone else whom they consider to be like a lesser being, women. And what so many followers forget is that although God supposedly made Eve second, he created men and women equally in his own image. So I just have this problem with any sort of religion or tradition or following that kind of says, no, men are better, men are superior, we're more rationally minded, we're better thinkers, we should have the power. And it's like, well, actually, especially in Christianity, you're looking at a religion that in ancient Near Eastern times had a higher value for women. Sure, you have countless stories of women who were stoned to death for adultery and things like that, but then you also have stories that Jesus himself used that placed women above and said, look at their faith, look at how they live their lives. So, you know, I'm just going to say when I sit under a table and binge eat my chocolate, if some man walks by and criticizes me, I'm just going to ask him why men are allowed to have bellies that hang over their pants, but women have to make sure that they show off, you know, like well-designed curves. I may not have been able to articulate that to my father at the age of eight, but as I grow older, you know, I can't stop myself from wondering why these double standards are so often enforced in Christian households. There seems to be this notion that you can't really be a Christian and a feminist. And I think that's probably because women have been trained to believe that they are, you know, less than their male counterparts. But let me tell you, feminism is not about female supremacy, which I think is what these pasty white men think. Um, It is about equality of all people, regardless of gender sexual identity, skin color. And Easter's a great time to think about that. I mean, why should we be celebrating one gender above another or the accomplishments of 
a god or something like that. I think that all of these holidays that put someone above someone else, especially when it comes to gender, should really just be a celebration of how much we can accomplish when we work together. Well, I think those pasty white men that you talked about um, are not, they don't just think that feminism is about female supremacy. I think part of the issue is that they are kind of scared of losing their own privileges. I think um, that for a group of people who have been privileged for such a long time, anything that, um, you know, comes close to an idea of equality feels like... um, feels like supremacy exactly yeah it maybe feels like um the pushing of female supremacy to them which it isn't it's just that they lose their privileges yeah right it's the same thing with anyone uh any person of color yeah is uh demonized by white people Mm. um it seems you know obviously not all white people so don't get upset uh listeners but the general idea is you're threatening the supremacy of um, white folks who have had a lot of power for quite some time. Yeah. And I think that's obvious in so much of the news now. We're seeing this. And I think, I think what is also true is, and I think it's not just super Christianity, is that religion or, you know, institutionalized religion very often is a way of cementing a specific status quo, whether that is a status quo of inequality between men and women or if it's about something else, you know. It's, um, it's cementing a status quo because it gives it uh, a kind of pseudo-natural or, you know, uh, basis. It says, well, this is how God intended it in some way or the other. And then it's harder and to... it's impossible to argue with people who have exactly. that belief. Because yeah. no matter what you say they will always be right because they have this divine power on exactly. their side. And- exactly. I mean, that's really, that's the good thing about like a good thing, quote unquote good, or let's say practical thing about um, certain sacred texts is that it's really about the interpretation of those texts. You can make them mean almost anything, right? Yeah. And um, those people who have certain privileges, where they be white men or, you know, um, of course are interested in kind of cementing the status quo and right. using then that text to do that. And that makes Absolutely. complete sense. Yeah. I mean, I'm not religious in any way and I was not brought up brought up by religious parents. Um, I grew up in a Catholic country, but I was never like religious in any way. I'm kind of an agnostic. Um, mm. And you were talking about the whole, like you cannot be feminist and religious at the same time idea. And it's something that is pushed by Christians that are interested in like conservative gender roles. But it's also an idea that many feminists told, I think, that you Mm. cannot be a feminist and religious at the same time. And it makes sense to certain... I think it makes sense because when we say religion nowadays, we mean monotheistic religions and then we mean androcentric religions, right? But I think one thing that I learned about learn in the process of preparing and researching for this episode is that well it doesn't have to be that way right there were religious traditions that were not androcentric that were not patriarchal and i'm actually you know this is why you know this is what i take away from this actually is that religion doesn't have to be anti-feminist 
it is mostly nowadays, but that's not how it has to be. And yeah, so I really liked hearing about those goddesses. And I really also love, I really enjoy hearing about uh, like feminist spiritual traditions that exist up until the state. I actually think we should make an episode about the Wiccas, by the way. I think it's I really, I'm on, on that. that. Yeah, they're really fascinating. Um, so yeah, and I also wonder, you know, to which extent spirituality is kind of wired into our being as human beings. I'm pretty sure it's yeah. just hardwired. Yeah, me I too. I think that people need a purpose. They need some explanation for right. why the world exists. And in yeah. the beginning, like, or, you know, earlier on, I think it was easier for people to say, you know, worshipping the gods and goddesses because each one symbolized something like earth or water right. or they didn't have answers yeah they didn't have science yeah as and science starts to rise then you can see atheism or agnosticism yeah. start to rise but science it's certainly not religion in the way that most people would see religion i mean would want to categorize it as the same it's not but it's a way of explaining the world it can be the substitute yeah. for yeah. religion i mean it still gives you purpose because you understand the world around you it gives you an understanding and i think that it can fill that gap Yes, which completely. is why we're starting to see a rise of people walking away from religion mm, a yeah. little more. But at the getting same that gap yeah. filled by science. Yeah, yeah, completely. But at the same time, I really, I really kind of liked. I, I don't know. I kind of liked the idea that there are women who say, "Well, you know what? We want to have some kind of spiritual practice. You know, we want to yeah. pray and worship, but we don't want to worship your male patriarchal god." So we're just going to worship goddesses. I kind of yeah. like that. Um, yeah. I don't know. This... I guess the way that I see any religion, if people want to... I don't understand following things to a certain... Like every rule has to be followed. Mm -hmm. If you want to follow a religion, follow it to what is best for you. Right. And doesn't harm other people. Yeah. So even like modern day Wiccans or Neo-Pagans, say you choose Athena to be your goddess... Have her be however you want her to be. Yes, I mean, take some stuff from myth. If you want her, if you want to worship her as the the fearsome war goddess, then worship her as the fearsome war goddess. If you want to worship her as the basket weaver, then do that. You know, I mean, just whatever fits for you. Which I think I think is the point of any religion, or at least it should be the point of any yeah, religion. Yeah, and I, you know, I think that's why I had such a hard time with Christianity is that it felt like a lot of times people kind of had this idea of cookie cutter faith one size yeah. fits all you have to conform to this mold or else you know you're bad at your religion you're yeah. bad at your faith whatever and I always thought that was funny because you know in the early church they valued small community your faith was private you prayed in private and now it's become kind of this huge enterprise where you have mega churches and people who don't connect with each other who don't know each other judging each other and yeah. I just always wondered, you know, what gave someone the right to tell me how to live my life or else I was a bad person? Yeah. That always really turned me off to religion. Well, and I think this is kind of the lesson that we can take away from the whole goddesses thing is your god doesn't have to be an old white man who gets fed up about what you do with your genitals. But it can also be a fierce, cool fertility goddess, right? A badass you woman. As much goddamn chocolate as you want. Exactly, exactly. That that is a religion I can get on board with. Exactly. 
Okay. Well, this has been fun. Yes, I absolutely. A lot from this, actually. Is there is there anything you'd like to add? I don't think so. I think I okay. got most of my, you know, like rage and anger out. Okay. Yeah. Then, um, dear listeners, thank you so much for listening to this very first episode of the She Who Persisted podcast. Which was thank you, thank you, thank you. The very special Easter special. Um, you can listen to us on iTunes. Please subscribe there. Please rate the podcast in review because this is how other people find us. And you know how much other people want to find us because everyone needs a feminist podcast in their lives, right? Of course. You need one, I need one. Bethany needs one. Your mom, your dad, your goldfish, your cousin. In that, Your dog. Yes. In that exact Cats. Cats. Yep. Your lions. In that exact order, okay? <laughs> everyone needs it. Also, in the next few weeks, we will add to a poc- uh, we will add a podcast to all kinds of Android apps. So, if you listen on a specific app and you want us to add that to add the podcast to the app, please let us know because there are like millions of them. And um, so, we will let us know which you use to listen to podcasts, and we will add our uh, show to the the app then we are on facebook so please like us on facebook um you can also pop us a message there if you have constructive criticism or topics that you would like us to cover or if you want to add anything to the things we said or if you want to praise us please praise us we like praise and chocolate and praise yes i do want to say that if you have a topic that you would really like to hear about just drop us a line let us know we're all scholars here we do a lot of research if you have any questions about our sources, yes. drop us a line. Yes. More than happy to fill you in. Yes. More than happy to do the research that you really don't want to Google. We're on that. Okay. Or, or Google. Okay. And uh, you can email us at shepersistedpodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. The handle is shepersistedpod. Hail the goddess. Eat all the chocolate and stay nasty. Bye. Bye.